0: You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk
1: I think it's bad news for the English game. We're not creative enough and we're not positive enough. It's coming home, it's coming home. it's coming will go on it's back so back It's coming up. It's coming up. It's coming up. It's coming, coming It's coming, coming
0: Hello everyone, welcome to uh, this special World Cup edition of Luke's English Podcast. Uh, In this one, I'm going to focus on England. I'm going to start by focusing on England anyway. The music that you just heard was the opening to a track called Football's Coming Home, which was written and recorded by a couple of comedians called uh, David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, alongside a pop group called The Lightning Seeds. It was released in 1998, and the song sort of uh, sums up a lot of the feelings that English people have about their national team. You can find the lyrics on the webpage for this, um, for this podcast episode. Now, in the last one, I gave you a kind of general context about the World Cup. Uh, I talked to you about the groups. I talked to you about um, some of the things that uh, uh, are going on. And so we're, I, I established a, a list of contents for this series of episodes about the World Cup. Um, I knew I wouldn't be able to squeeze it all into one episode, so I've decided to just make a few episodes about it. So in the last one, I talked to you about what the World Cup means to me personally. I talked about um, the general situation after one week of the tournament. Um, Now I'm going to focus on England. Also, um, in this series, I'm going to talk to you about changes to the rules and also the dark side of the World Cup. And uh, I'd like to tell you a brief history of the World Cup as well. OK, so loads and loads of football and World Cup related things. Um, this one then it's all about England, 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 England. That's what we're talking about now. Um, all right. So some people have asked me on the website what I think. What do I think of England's chances? Um, how are we doing? Well, let me just tell you where we are at this point in the tournament. We're in Group D. uh, People are calling it the Group of Death uh, facing um, Italy, uh, Uruguay and Costa Rica. Um, It's a tough group. Because Uruguay and Costa Rica are both very uh, solid teams, really. They're they're playing in their host continent. Um, Italy, very, very difficult team to beat. They've got a very good defensive record. Um, All sorts of uh, reasons why this could be a very, very difficult um, um, World Cup for England. Um, But, um, despite losing the opening game 2-1, I'm feeling a little bit positive Maybe it's just me, because it doesn't, It seems that many people in England, the media and so on, have just kind of accepted that, well, maybe England don't have a chance this year, so let's not get too excited about it. Because what normally happens is that everyone seems to just expect that England are going to win, you know? The, the newspaper articles say things like, England expects, you know, there's all this expectation. Um, so, I think that puts a lot of pressure on the team and, and on the players this time. It seems that the you know everyone 's kind of like a little bit resigned to uh, failure we 've got used to it you see um, okay, so let me talk to you about sort of england 's World Cup history. You know that we won the World Cup in one thousand nine hundred and sixty six we 've won it once. 1966 was a great year for England, the middle of the 60s. It was swinging London, all that kind of stuff. The Beatles were releasing classic albums. The British pop culture was booming. Uh, Fashion industry, the pop music industry, a lot of things seemed to be happening in London. And that summer at Wembley Stadium, England won the World Cup. And who did they beat? They beat Germany, West Germany, in fact. Um, And... uh, that seemed to be sort of symbolic somehow symbolic of something maybe some idea that you know england not only won the war against germany but then also won the world cup so it's kind of like a victory of english democracy or something anyway seemed to be very significant um some people say that england were a bit lucky in that game i'll talk about that in a bit um so won it in 1966 but haven't won it since Probably the best that we've done since then was in 1990, um, when we got to the semi-finals, okay? Uh, We faced who but our old rivals, Germany, in the semi-finals of the 1990 World Cup, and we lost. Very disappointing. Devastating. How did we lose? On penalties. That's right. Penalties. Now, England have a problem with penalty shootouts, a big problem. Um let me tell you about it. I also want to tell you about uh, why perhaps England haven't won the World Cup um, since 1966, despite um, hosting um, the English Premier League, which is generally considered to be like the sort of the best uh, football league in the world, certainly has some of the, the top players playing in it and the quality of football is very good i think generally it's considered to be the top league in the world so if why does england why is the english premier league so great and yet our uh, national team can't seem to um play at the right standard um well let's see let's see let's see okay first of all um a lot of the club teams in the premiership have foreign players okay so that might be part of it it's not um you know, all these foreign players from different countries play in the premiership. So when England's national team comes out, well, they can't, obviously, they can't uh, have all of those foreign players. So we just have to kind of select our uh, best English players. So that's one of the reasons why the national team is not quite as strong as the premiership itself, just because we don't have all those foreign players. Um, Maybe also because um, in England, in terms of the premiership, the premiership comes first, that that's where all the money is um the it's a massive industry around the english premier league and so um the whole infrastructure of the sport in england is focused on the club game and the national team gets kind of sidelined so that means that the players uh, focus on the clubs more um and the money is in the club football and the national team suffers as a result. Okay, it could be that. Um, It could also be a question of finding the right coach, that every year, you know, England's been trying to, every World Cup England struggle to find the right manager that's kind of going to use the right approach for the team, that's going to inspire everyone. We had Fabio Capello, who was meant to be this Italian genius who was going to help, but he didn't seem to sort of get through to the players and there were problems um, in 2010. Uh, We've had all sorts of managers that just didn't quite get it right Um, it could also be ego and personalities so a lot of the players certainly in 2010 in my opinion um, had big egos and maybe they just sort of didn't care enough about the national team they were too selfish they were too focused on their personal individual careers at their local clubs um, which meant that they somehow didn't bring the, the right level of passion or teamwork to the English national team so it could be something to do with that you know these super high play high super highly paid um players it's a bit like the french team you know they kind of uh decide that if they're not you know they're not perfectly happy then they can't play as well as they want they're kind of slightly sensitive they're like rock stars or something you know rock stars who refuse to go on stage unless they have uh just exactly the right uh, uh food laid out for them in the backstage area you know like if they, they won't go on stage unless all of the purple m&ms have been re- removed from their bowl or whatever you know it's maybe a similar thing that some of the english players I- um, in recent years have been kind of spoiled prima donnas um it seems a little bit different now um also there's tons of pressure and expectation from the media and from the and from the public. As I said, it's often assumed that England will win. Um, And that idea of football's coming home um, doesn't really help. You know, generally the English consider themselves to be the ones who invented football. And to an extent that's true. I mean because of the Industrial Revolution, the development of the railways, it meant that England created a standardised set of rules for the football, and because of our colonialism, our international empire and so on, we took those rules around the world. We kind of standardised the game in the early days. Um, Since then, you know, FIFA has sort of taken uh, responsibility for uh, football, and it's kind of out of British hands. But i think many british people or certainly english people consider themselves to be the ones who created or invented football i know that football was played all over the world you know it probably developed at the same time everywhere it's just that the english um wrote the rule book early on you know the universities played football factories in the industrial revolution had football teams and um since the railways were invented in england and they they crisscrossed the country it meant that the factories could start playing each other they could travel fairly quickly and fairly cheaply to other parts of the country in order to play each other and so naturally a set of standardized rules was made that standardized that standardized set of rules was then um, exported around the world and the rules of football were sort of you know first written in england i think and that's that's my that's the story that i've learned anyway Um, so with that, there's the sense that the English somehow have some right or some, um, you know, some level of, of right to win this competition. Because if they do, then, then football will finally come home again. Also, because we've won it once, um, there's that sense that, well, you've won it once, you can do it again. And we want to repeat that. We want to repeat that feeling. We want to have that back again. Um, also, um, yeah, just pride. I mean, it, football is, is a, a big uh, matter of pride in England. So many people love the game that they would obviously love England to win it. Uh, the fact that the Premiership is so such a big deal and all the English clubs are so big means that there's also a certain amount of pressure for the, the team to to, to um, be successful on the world stage. Yeah. Um, so all of this stuff sort of creates a certain amount of pressure for the individuals playing on the pitch. If they go into the game with this pressure on their shoulders, it's not going to help. It's not going to help them to 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 succeed. It's going to be hard to bond as a team, particularly when they feel like everyone at home in England is going to be so uh, attentive and so upset with them. It's not going to lend itself to the right attitude. I mean, famously, last time um, when England performed badly in the World Cup, Rooney... Wayne Rooney got sort of very angry with the media and he kind of shouted at uh, one of the cameras and he he was very upset with the fans because the fans in the stadium were actually booing the English team and so he got really upset and he said something about you know how it's he he made a sarcastic comment something like oh it's great isn't it when the fans are behind you meaning um, you know it's annoying that the fans were booing Um, so all these things sort of combined to make it sort of a bit hard for England but also just maybe because our our players are not quite up to the right standard although even that doesn't seem to make sense because we've got some great players Stephen Gerrard's a, a great midfielder although he's getting a bit old now Wayne Rooney of course we know what he can do we saw him performing brilliantly in the European Championships in 2006 he's a great talent. He's done so well at Manchester United, but he's never quite matched that success for England. Um, And we've got other members of the team in the past who've been great, but have never quite delivered internationally. Nowadays, we've got a younger team and it's great to see them working well together. In the Italy game, they were good, despite losing. It was it was good to see them being positive they were well behaved they were behaving you know they they uh they weren't fouling they were being polite with other people on the pitch you know as much as polite as you can expect but they weren't diving too much i think uh they weren't arguing with the referee too much the conduct was good uh they seemed positive they seemed to be working well as a team we've got a couple of great forwards in uh, Sturridge and Sterling. Sturridge in particular looks pretty strong against Italy um, and he scored a goal with a great assist from uh, uh, Wayne Rooney. It was a good goal. So the team is... I mean, on paper, the team is not quite as strong as it was in 2010 in terms of the individuals we have in the team. For example, we don't have Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, uh, a couple of uh, really strong players who are not in the team this year, probably just a bit too old. Um, So um, on paper, the team is not as good, but in terms of the way they actually performed against Italy, it was quite promising. So in this context of like not, for some reason, now people not quite expecting it that much maybe it 's giving the giving the team um, a little bit more freedom to just relax and try and enjoy themselves on the pitch um, so yeah now so it 's kind of looking a little bit better this year, but you know it 's going to be tough it 's going to be tough for us to qualify. So I think what's happened actually in the media this year is because we're in apparently the group of death. Maybe the media has kind of been repeating this story of like, oh, it's going to be very difficult. We'll, have a, we'll be very lucky to get through. Uh, the team's not quite as good as it was. Maybe this is sort of releasing some pressure. And maybe there's a glimmer of hope that um, the team, if, if we perform well like we did against Italy, we just need to score. We just need to be able to, we need a goal machine. I mean, back in 1986, 1990, we had Gary Lineker, who was a bit of a goal machine. He was just one of those guys who was dangerous in front of goal. And he had that ability to stand with his back to goal and, you know, um, make it very difficult for the defenders. And he, w- he had a great finish. In 1986, he won the Golden Boot for scoring six goals in the tournament. 1990, he, he was dangerous as well, scoring against uh, Cameroon in the quarterfinals and Germany in the, in the semifinals. finals can Sturridge fulfil that role? Let's hope so. Um, so, let me talk to you about penalties, okay? Because penalties are like England's nemesis. Uh, we're, we're cursed by penalties, absolutely cursed by them. Uh, the curse of the penalty shootout. Let me tell you the story of England's penalty uh, sorrow, okay? Uh, now, do you know? Do you know why we've got such problems with penalties? Well. To be honest with you, I can't tell you why England has a problem with scoring penalties, but we seem to because we've uh, we've had all kinds of disappointments with penalties. So everyone's crossing their fingers that we don't end up in a penalty shootout situation. Um, maybe it's because maybe it's just because we haven't scored enough goals in our games. Anyway, what's the story? Okay, let's go back to World Cup nineteen ninety it took place in italy england had a good team it was looking pretty good we got to the semi-finals and who were we playing that's right our old rivals germany west germany no it was just germany at this point because uh, it was 1990 after the berlin wall had had, uh, had gone down oh no actually hold on no it was still west germany it's a bit confusing with all the political changes that go on anyway 1990 we get to the semi-finals um At the end of the game, it's 1-1. It goes to a penalty shootout. What happens? Two of our team members fail to score. Stuart Pearce, the brilliant Stuart Pearce, his nickname was Psycho, um, because he was apparently psychotic as a defender. Very tough, very tough guy. um, Difficult to play against. And he was a a uh, a bit of a penalty kick master. But Stuart Pearce managed to just blast the ball right into uh, the goalkeeper's legs. And then another player, Chris Waddle, hit the ball over the, over the crossbar and we were knocked out of the World Cup. It's a horrible way to get, it, get knocked out. And the two guys were devastated. I was devastated too. I was 13 years old. I was just full of enthusiasm for England. I thought that we could get to the final. But disappointingly, we got knocked out on penalties. It was horrible. Heartbreaking then two years later euro 96 the european championships in 1996 and it was hosted by england it was held in england exactly 30 years after we'd won the uh, the world cup in 1966 uh, so 30 years later euro 96 uh, the newspapers were full of stories about how football was coming home and the team looked good We looked good. We beat the Dutch. We beat the Scottish. We were very convincing. We got to the semi-finals. Against who? That's right. Germany. Our old rivals. Again. England versus Germany. And it ended up in a penalty shootout again. This time Stuart Pearce managed to score. And it was a great moment because he scores and he just, you could see that it was like cathartic for him. He scored and he ran over to the England supporters and screamed at them uh, like, come on, like that. It's brilliant. You've got to see the video. I'm going to try and find the video so I can show it to you on the website of Stuart Pearce scoring his his uh, his penalty. I'm just writing that down. Stuart Pearce, uh, penalty video, um, penalty video. F- Video 1996, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough because we lost to Germany on penalties. Again, devastating, horrible. Our competition was over, we were knocked out at home to Germany when we had a good chance of winning. It wasn't to be. Then, what's next? Um, Next up is the World Cup 1998. 1994, we didn't qualify very disappointing. World Cup 1998. We got to the second round against Argentina. What happened? Yes, that's right. It got to a penalty shootout again. And this time we were knocked out again because uh, two of our players failed to score. Terribly disappointing we we left the World Cup only in the second round. And you know, it's 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 not a very dignified way to go out to lose on penalties. Horrible. Uh, again, just heartbreak Devastation uh, But it wasn't; it still wasn't over Our penalty problems still haven't finished Because then we go forward to the European Championships again in 2004 This time we got to the quarter-finals against Portugal And it was a 2-2 draw at the end of the game So it went to penalties again And that's right, we got knocked out on penalties Um to two of our guys um, uh, no one of our guys failed to score that was enough we were out on penalties next 2006 the World Cup in Germany um, again we faced Portugal so before it was Germany they were our nemesis but now it seems Portugal have taken their place in 2006 and we got to the uh, quarter final again um, and uh against Portugal it ended up in a, uh, um, a draw so it was penalties boom knocked out again uh, more heartbreak more devastation surely that's the end no it's not because we get to the European Championships in 2012 we face Italy this time uh, in the quarterfinals again uh, and that's right boom knocked out Um, once again on penalties just horrible so that's how many times one two three four five six times we've been knocked out of big international tournaments because of penalties that's a lot i mean that's that's serious that's really bad that's enough to make you really paranoid as a player on the england team so god i help i just hope that we don't end up in a penalty shootout scenario at some point because it's just going to be too much too much drama we can't surely get knocked out on penalties seven times in a row. Why as well? Why are we losing on penalties? I don't know. Maybe it's just a question of skill. I think it's probably all in the mind, you know. It's a mental thing. Um, I mean, losing in the semi-finals to Germany on penalties is enough to give you a bit of a problem about it. But then after it happening six times, it's just it's too much. So we'll see. I think it feels like, as I've said, it feels like at this point that the pressure's off a little bit. So if it does happen, maybe the England players will just, you know, be able to deal with it a bit better. Let's hope so. Um, So there you go. That's the England situation. Um, mm, We'll see what happens. We will see. Our next game is tomorrow and we're playing Uruguay. And, oh, God. Just, God. I just really hope that we win. Just please, can we just... I mean, what would I be satisfied with? I think I'd be satisfied if we got to the quarterfinals, to be honest. I think that's where we're at. Obviously, I'd be over the moon if we got to the final. That would just be the best. But it's going to be tough for us. The conditions we're playing in, we're playing at a stadium out in the middle of the Amazon jungle, for God's sake. The conditions are tough. It's so hot and humid. We're English guys, for goodness sake. We're not used to playing in those conditions. It's going to be hard. Um, so anyway, stiff up a lip, you know. Best foot forward. Let's just do our best and uh, see what we can do. We'll go home with our heads held high. Let's just try and do our best. Our manager, Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson. Yeah. Well, you know, the the boys have gone out there. They've done their best. You know, I think the. Uh... It's been a tough game for them, considering the conditions, but I'm happy with the, the way the boys played. And, uh, you know, let's just hope they can repeat the uh, their performance on, uh, on Thursday. You know, that's, that's my Roy Hodgson impression. There you go. He looks a little bit like an owl. Just extra information for you there. And that's a good thing for me, because I like owls. Because owls are sort of wise and they can fly and they can turn their heads around 360 degrees. I don't know if Roy Hodgson can turn his head around 360 degrees. And even if he could, would that be an advantage? I, I don't know. Um, I really don't know if, if being able to do that would help. Um, but certainly him looking like an owl could just be a little bit positive because you think, well, you know, our manager, he must know what he's talking about because he looks like, he looks wise. And Uh, and he looks, yeah, he looks like an owl. So that's, that's a good thing. It makes you feel secure. Yeah, okay, I don't know if it's going to make a difference. What does your manager look like? Does he look like a wise bird? A, a, A wise, uh, carnivorous bird um, or not? Uh, or, and does it make a difference? Well, we'll f- we'll find out, I suppose, as we see what happens during this, this World Cup competition. Um, right, I'm going to move on to number four in my list, which is changes to the rules. There have been a few changes. Goal line technology has been introduced in this World Cup, and it's about time. It's about time that FIFA uh, woke up and smelt the coffee and introduced goal line technology. Um, because Come on, it's the 21st century. There's nothing wrong with using technology to help um, deliver a little bit of fairness. Sometimes I get the impression that FIFA don't really care that much about fairness. Oh, a bit of controversy there. We'll come back to that in a bit. Um, Goal line technology. So this means that... um, Very clever technology has been introduced to establish whether or not uh, a goal has actually been scored. It's a bit like in the tennis and other sports. We're now able to identify whether the ball has fully crossed the line or not. So this is a great thing because this is going to make the competition more fair. Okay. Um, Last time England had a goal disallowed against Germany. Frank Lampard um, shot. from long distance the ball hit the crossbar bounced on the ground and then out of the goal the referee didn't give it but on the replay you can clearly see the ball was across the line it bounced inside the goal then bounced out again but the goal wasn't given if we'd if we'd been given that goal it could have made a massive difference to that game we could have possibly won we could have we could have won the world cup for goodness sake but we didn't because of because of a lack of goal line technology now some people might um you know remember in 1966 england scored a controversial goal against germany in that um in that tournament in the final um in fact i think it was jeff hurst hit the ball uh, long distance it hit the crossbar bounced down and then out of the goal the referee gave it as a goal but closer inspection of the replay in fact shows it wasn't a goal i'm i i admit it it wasn't a goal the 1966 goal that bounced and hit the crossbar and bounced out again wasn't actually a goal i admit it all right i mean we did win 4-2 in the end so you know that kind of makes up for it but maybe the disallowed goal in 2010 from uh, frank lampard maybe that's some kind of weird justice Um, and we're even now England and Germany were even, OK? I think the rivalry between England and Germany is kind of diminished now. Because, I mean, for example, we beat them 5-1 in a game at some point in 2005, I think. So that meant the English were like, OK, great, we can beat Germany, fine. Let's see. I mean, if we... Well, actually, they did completely smash us in 2010. I mean, they just took the piss out of us. Germany are incredible. They're, they're a powerhouse, they are an incredible team. It's just amazing to watch their teamwork. It's it's really stunning. And they they have their second favorites, I think, in this tournament, and for good reason, because they've got some great players and they work so well as a team. It's, it's, it's really impressive to watch. Um, I like Germany. I like watching Germany play. I'm impressed by their teamwork. Um, and I think that they could do well this year. Um, okay so goal line technology also have you noticed that the referees this year have got special sort of um shaving foam uh vanishing spray it's called and they spray it on the ground at free kick situations and it's used for two situations one is they spray a line so that the wall of players the wall of defenders will stand behind the line and the other one is they spray the ball they spray a little line around the ball so that the uh, the player knows where to put the ball and this is brilliant i think it 's first of all it 's very clever spray they spray it on the ground and after thirty seconds or a minute, the stuff disappears great it 's like temporary lines that can be put onto the pitch. Um, the other thing is that it's it 's definitely going to stop people cheating right because you know when the referee Um, tells the players where to stand in the wall and then the referee turns to walk back to the to, to the free kick area and all of those defenders in the wall just are starting to edge forward they creep forward sometimes it's ridiculous how far forward they creep they're just cheating you know they're not supposed to move forwards but they always do Also, the other way in which players cheat is the referee shows them where they got to put the ball for the free kick. And then they kind of do this thing where they throw the ball down and spin it. And it kind of rolls forward a little bit and they can gain a few extra inches of advantage. So that's a kind of cheating too. So this vanishing spray is going to cut that cheating out and it's going to make it more fair. It might change the game a little bit. It could mean that it's slightly easier to score from free kick situations it might be easier to score from dead ball situations which means that for um and is his name andrea perlo for the italian player perlo who is um a bit of a master at dead ball situations we might see a couple of amazing free kicks from him which is great, I mean, I like free kicks. I think goals scored from free kicks are really dramatic and amazing. They can be awesome, like David Beckham was very good at that. That was one of his strong points. dead ball situations. He could curl the ball over the wall, he could curl it around the wall into the top corner. It's a really majestic and beautiful thing to see. Um, so that's the um, the vanishing spray. What do you think of the vanishing spray? Do you think it's a good addition to the game? I mean. Personally, I think these additions are great. It's about time that FIFA added in these things to make sure the the game is more fair. Um, Generally, player conduct. So far, it's just pretty normal, really. The players are diving on the floor. I can't stand that stuff. To be honest with you, I can't stand seeing these grown men, these professionals, these highly paid professional athletes throwing themselves down like, "Oh, oh I fell over." You know, it's pathetic, isn't it? And usually, they're really bad at they're really bad actors. I suppose the that they do it really because often it works. And it does get them free kicks. I mean, some people say that the Brazilian penalty that they got in their first game was not justified. And that the player dived. Um, that it wasn't a genuine foul. And then he just went down. You know, he just dived onto the floor. I think it's pretty pathetic. And it's it's basically like cheating. Most people accept it as being a normal part of the game these days. But I can't stand seeing it myself. I just think that it's just rubbish. Pathetic, isn't it? Uh, oh he touched me like you're a grown man the the most annoying bit is when they roll around on the floor grabbing their faces like oh my face my eyes my eyes like what happened oh he just brushed against me but my eyes just come on they wouldn't last five minutes in a rugby game would they um okay so there you go also time wasting that's another annoying thing can't stand time wasting in football that's where one team is winning and they decide that they're going to um, uh, waste time in order to try and you know get a good result and so they kind of like you know kick the ball back to the goalkeeper they kick the ball um, out into the stands or they they sort of stand with the ball near the the corner post and block it so that the you know attacking player can't win the possession and all the time the clock is ticking all these pathetic like examples of games gamesmanship sportsmanship and gamesmanship sportsmanship is like fair play doing things that are fair and being um reasonable all right gamesmanship is doing things that are slightly outside the rules or trying to get an unfair advantage so I see lots of gamesmanship in football, and it really annoys me. I think it's just an English value. You know, we value fair play. A lot of other nations sort of value the idea of, well, if you can get away with it, that's fine. You go for it. Like the, like the Maradona handball, the Maradona hand of God. For the Argentinians, this is a great triumph because it's like they beat the system, you know. Probably for them, they feel like they're coming from a slightly disadvantaged position, maybe. I don't know. Um, but that was a great triumph also there's the Falklands situation in the backgrounds in the background there as a kind of context for that but um, that really hurt the English because we hate cheating generally Um, I mean you know obviously there is example there are examples of cheating in English sport but um, generally speaking as a principle the English are against cheating and we value fair play Uh, but other other nations just take it as part of the game you know if you can Bend or break the rules and get away with it, then fine. That's it's the result that matters at the end. Um, I personally hate time wasting, and I, I would like to see FIFA introducing some rule to penalise it because it's bad for the game. I think you know when uh, a team is winning and they decide they're just going to lock down the game. Um, it's not very entertaining to watch a team just locking off a game and preventing any football being played just because it's their way of winning it's it's a it's sort of a bit pathetic i think uh and it's not fun to watch so it would be nice to see fifa introducing some kind of pen, penalty for um Time wasting. I'm not saying a penalty, you know, where you have an opportunity to take a free kick from the penalty spot. No, I just mean penalising um, the the team that time wastes in some way, maybe by um, you know giving the other team a free kick or, or whatever. Um, Right, so I guess now I'm starting to criticise football a little bit. In fact, what I'd like to do now is talk about the sort of other side of the World Cup, the dark side of it, the the controversy, the corruption and the civil unrest. First of all, in Brazil. So, yes, um, a lot of people, it seems, in Brazil are not happy with the World Cup. And I can completely understand that. Um, Let's see, $11 billion or more has been spent on developing stadiums and developing infrastructure for the world cup 11 billion dollars now how much of that money is going to end up benefiting the people of brazil um not much of it most of the most of the profit is going to go into the pockets of fifa it's not necessarily going to go into brazilian people's pockets yes there is a lot of um Tourism coming into Brazil, a lot of local businesses will benefit from that, but um, it 's a fringe benefit really um, it 's a bit sickening isn 't it that a World Cup with all the values of the World Cup about you know celebrating peace and, and togetherness and so on it 's a bit sickening that FIFA seems to not really care about those things that they care more about. Benefiting from sponsorships and things like that. It's pretty sickening. So, yes, there have been riots and public unrest in Brazil uh, because, I mean, a lot of Brazilian people need money to be spent on hospitals, on schools, on public facilities, on railways, on basic infrastructure to help people live their lives properly. Instead, what's happening or what's happened is that um, million dollar stadiums have been built stadiums which are not going to be used after the the games. And that's just a, a little bit sad. It's a bit crazy, isn't it, really? It's slightly insane to be, to spend all this money on a stadium that's going to be used for a few games and then it's just going to kind of rot away. Is that what's going to happen? Are these stadiums just never going to be used again? Uh, If you are Brazilian and you've got an opinion on this, you can leave a comment on the website, teacherluke.co.uk. I'd like to know what you think. You can leave an anonymous comment if you want. You don't have to give your name and and email address or anything. You can just sign in as a Brazilian or, or whatever you want. But we want to know. We want to hear from you, Brazil. We want to know what you think about all of this. How do you feel about having the World Cup in your country? Um... Also, there's a corruption scandal uh, around FIFA with the um, the 2022 uh, World Cup, which is going to happen in Qatar. And a lot of people are, are criticising FIFA for sort of taking bribes, basically, for corruption. Um, these are just allegations. I can't say that they're absolutely true. There are lots of allegations that uh, FIFA's apparently... Well, FIFA's choice for giving the World Cup to Qatar um, was because Qatar's got loads of money and they bribed FIFA. Um, I can't, I don't know if it's true or not. It's, sort of, it's certainly suspicious. And also you start to question the, the decision of you know, giving the World Cup to Qatar. Sure, the World Cup hasn't been hosted by a, a nation in the Arabic-speaking world. Sure, fine but really in qatar in in summer when the world cup's likely to take when the world cup is going to take place in qatar uh temperatures can be 50 degrees 50 degrees centigrade that's like over 120 degrees fahrenheit that's incredibly hot is it wise is it wise to have football games being played in those conditions really um i mean surely this is impossible it's um it's, it's insane. People, you know, professional athletes should not be um, expected to play 90 minutes of football in 50 degrees, 50 degrees centigrade. It's just mad. I, I know that um, the Qataris are saying that they will, um, you know, build stadiums that are going to have some sort of air conditioning systems that will cool the, the pitch down. But that That just seems to be a a crazy use of resources. Why spend, like, billions and billions of dollars developing these super air-conditioned stadiums? It's just a waste of... I just feel like it's a waste of money. Like, all of that air-conditioning is going to be pumping out. It's going to be using up energy. I don't know. It's a crazy world. It really is. I understand that a, a Middle Eastern nation deserves to host the games, but is it practical, really? um yeah well we we will see uh, there's also the falklands issue um argentina um they may face some kind of legal action because uh, in their opening game the players were photographed holding a banner uh the banner um the banner the banner the banner okay let me just have a quick look um at this uh, website there's a little report about argentina and their their um their their banner uh basically they they held out a banner which was photographed that said that the malvinas belong to argentina all right so this is this is a, a fairly controversial debate between england and, and argentina uh, about the falkland islands or otherwise known as the malvinas okay uh, these are small islands off the coast of of Argentina and um, they are currently um, British territory although in Argentina they believe them to be the uh, natural uh, property of Argentina okay so uh, this has been the cause of, of of conflict, like armed conflict, in in the past. In the Falklands War in the in the nineteen eighties, uh, there, there was um, a conflict over the ownership of the Falkland Islands, and Britain and Argentina went to war. There was a there was a small conflict about it. People lost their lives. Um, the islands remain part of British territory, um, and it's a big debate. I had a little look on the internet, did a bit of research into the debate, and um it seems that the that the debate at the moment seems to be on the side of um of britain actually i i I know that there's a strong there are very strong feelings about this in Argentina and i don't necessarily want to get deeply into it now, but I can just give you a little bit of information about the arguments on both sides so uh, on the um f- okay the argument ...that says that the Falklands should belong to Argentina... ...or that the Malvinas should belong to Argentina... Uh, ...goes something along these lines... ...basically it's like colonial... ...colonial... ...colo... <laughs> ...sometimes I can't speak my own language... ...all right, colonialism has ended... ...so why should Britain claim uh, land... ...which is so far from its home country? It's not 1888... ...it's not 1880 anymore... ...okay... Um, you know, you can't really do that anymore. Um, Argentina naturally should be the owners of the Falkland Islands because it's, you know, it's just on their doorstep. Um, all right, but the argument against that is that um, um, the Falklanders, that the people who actually live on the Falkland Islands have the right to decide, um, you know, Uh, who owns the islands and the residents there overwhelmingly choose to stay british Um, so if argentina decides to take the islands by force then that would be some sort of undemocratic action it would be unfair Um, and it would be an act of aggression against the people uh, who live on the islands and then you got a problem so what do i think about the argentine player's protesting against Britain's occupation of the Malvinas well I mean I understand that argent Argentina has a um, have very strong feelings about this but the World Cup is not supposed to be the the place to uh, present those ideas you know that's just the way it is it's it's not supposed to be a, um, a platform for um, political Uh, Ideas. I know it's a very sensitive issue, but ultimately I think that's what it comes down to at the World Cup. Um, But I, you know, Luke's English podcast is not necessarily the place for me to have this debate. Uh, But if you want to read more about this debate, then you can go to, well, you can go to teacherloop.co.uk. find the episode for this, uh, find the page for this podcast. And there's a link to debate.org, which will show you different opinions on both sides of the argument. Okay, as ever, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to leave comments with your opinions on this subject. What do you think? If you're from Argentina, how do you feel about this? Or is it just not a big deal for you? I expect even in Argentina there will be opinions on both sides as well. But anyway, uh, I'd I'd rather not get into the serious stuff too much on Luke's English podcast. I don't want it to cause problems and things like that. Um, You know what I think. I think we should all just have some ice cream and try and, try not to start throwing bombs at each other. Uh, That would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Actually, now, what I'd like to do is play you some audio um, from a guy called John Oliver. Alright, now I'm gonna, this is going to play out to the end of the episode, but I will give you a little bit of background info on it first. So John Oliver is a British stand-up comedian who now works in America. He's brilliant. He's one of the guys who does the Bugle podcast, if you know about that. The Bugle is Andy Zaltzman and John Oliver. They're two comedians. Andy is in England, John is in, in the US, um, and they cover uh, all of the international news stories in a satirical way. Uh, John is really impressive. He's a really smart guy, and he's a very, very shrewd satirist. And in this report, which is called Last Week Tonight, which is an HBO show, in this one, he um, deals with a lot of the controversies and allegations of corruption around uh, the World Cup. Now, his approach is is a bit... It, his analogy is like this. He, he says that you should never uh, try and find out too much about what you love. Uh, It's the sausage analogy. He loves sausages but he doesn't think that you should try and find out how a sausage is made because when you do find out how a sausage is made you realise that it's full of all sorts of nasty things that you don't necessarily want to eat. It's the same with the World Cup. He loves the World Cup but he doesn't necessarily want to find out how the World Cup is made because when you do look at it you realise there's all sorts of unsavoury and nasty things that go into it. Um, In this report which is actually 12 to 13 minutes long. I'm going to play the whole thing to you because I think he's really clever and really smart. It's very funny, but also uh, a very complete look at the controversial side of the World Cup, all right? Um, I'm just going to play it to you. Just, you know, uh, you're just going to have to try and understand it. There isn't necessarily time for me to explain everything for you. I expect you'll understand some of it. Some some of it will go over your head. You'll just have to do your best, okay? But now let's listen to John Oliver from his show last week tonight um, talking about FIFA and the World Cup. Here we go. Over to you, John. By the way, just to cover my ass a little bit... The views that you're going to hear from John Oliver now are John Oliver's views. They're not necessarily my views, okay? I'm playing them to you because I think it's interesting to hear another side of the story. Most of the time in the media, we just get nothing but how brilliant the World Cup is and all that kind of thing. We're not necessarily getting the whole picture. We're not necessarily uh, getting stories about the, um, the, the riots in Brazil and the unhappiness and the alleged corruptions, okay? So... What you're going to hear from John Oliver is a little bit controversial, okay? Um, I am aware of that, um, but uh, I think it's just interesting for perspective, okay? So you can now listen to John Oliver talking about the World Cup.
2: I would like to talk to you about the sausage principle. Uh, The theory that says if you love something, never find out how it was made. Well, tonight, I would like to show you my sausage. Wait, wait, wait. This is my sausage. The 2014 FIFA World Cup. Oh, my God! (laughs) Okay, the World Cup starts this week, and I am both excited and extremely conflicted about it. Now, I know, in America, soccer is something you pick your 10-year-old daughter up from. But, But for me and everyone else on Earth, it's a little more important. Soccer had become Brazil's religion. In Colombia, soccer was a religion. Football is a religion here. Soccer, or football, like we say, <laughs> it's a religion. Yeah, and they're not exaggerating. When David Beckham got a tattoo of Jesus, the response of most soccer fans was, that that's huge for Jesus. That's, that's a big deal for him. He, here's, here's my conflict. The World Cup is one of my favorite things, but it's organized by these guys. FIFA. You either know it as the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, or that soccer video game you have. But for American viewers who may never have encountered them, FIFA is a comically grotesque organisation. In fact, telling someone about the inner workings of FIFA for the first time is a bit like showing someone two girls, one cup. You, You do it mainly so you can watch the horrified expression on people's faces. Because let's start where FIFA's current World Cup is about to take place, Brazil. Brazilians are excited about everything. This is how they celebrate the fact that it's just about to be Lent. They they love the concept of giving up chocolate temporarily. They're also the biggest soccer fans on earth, so they must be thrilled at the prospect of hosting the World Cup.
1: There's been months of unrest in
2: some of the city's favelas, or slums, with clashes between police and residents. Here, people demonstrated against Brazil holding the World Cup. That makes no sense. Why would you be unhappy hosting the thing that you love the most in all the world?
0: The government has spent more than $11 billion getting ready.
2: The United States team will play its second game here in the city of Manaus in this brand new
0: $270 million stadium. Manaus is so remote that it's almost impossible to reach by car, which is why officials had to have the stadium materials brought in by boat, shipped across the Atlantic from Portugal and up the Amazon River.
2: Okay, that does seem like a waste of money, especially when you consider that that stadium is only going to be used for four World Cup games. There's also no team in Manaus that can fill it afterwards, at which point it becomes the world's most expensive bird toilet. No wonder Brazilians are so upset, especially when you think about what they are actually getting in return.
1: Well, and they're going to make money as
2: well as as the money they're spending.
0: FIFA makes the money. This is where the controversy is. The country usually doesn't make money. FIFA, the organization of the World Cup, is who makes the money.
2: Yeah, Brazil, let me put this in terms you might understand. Think of money as pubic hair and FIFA as wax. (laughs) Oh, they're going to be all over you during the World Cup, but when they go, they're taking all the money with them, (laughs) including some from places you didn't even know you had any money, (laughs) leaving you teary-eyed, going, Jesus, what happened here? What, What happened? I'm never doing this again. Because here are FIFA's tax demands for prospective host countries.
0: It is FIFA and its FIFA subsidiaries that are fully exempt from any tax whatsoever levied at whatever level, state level, municipality level, all sorts of taxes, consumption taxes, income taxes, you name it, it's all exempt.
2: That's right. By Brazil's own estimates, they're allowing FIFA to forego $250 million in taxes. Somewhere, Wesley Snipes is going, so soccer was the answer. (laughs) Oh, God. It seems so obvious now. now. Now, FIFA says they leave a lot behind, which they do, like new laws. Because, you see, once upon a time, Brazil did this.
1: In 2003, the Brazilian government banned alcohol from stadiums because of the enormously high death rate amongst fans.
2: Well, that seems like a good idea. (laughs) Potentially life-saving, even. The only problem is, Budweiser is one of FIFA's key sponsors, and they sell a product they reflexively insist on calling beer. And... (laughs) FIFA seemed anxious to protect Budweiser from a law designed to protect people. Which is why FIFA Secretary General went to Brazil with a simple message. I'm sorry to say, and maybe I look a bit arrogant, but that's something we'll not negotiate. I mean, there will be, and there must be, as part of the, of the law, the fact that we have the right to sell beer. Yes, uh, maybe I look a bit arrogant, uh, but uh, <laughs> how you say, uh, "fuck your laws. Uh, <laughs> and your public safety, is is that that right? And the amazing thing is here, FIFA won. They successfully pressured Brazil into passing a so-called Budweiser bill, allowing beer sales in soccer stadiums. And at this point, you can either be horrified by that or relieved that FIFA wasn't also sponsored by cocaine and chainsaws. (laughs) And Brazil, Brazil is lucky. Brazil's lucky. At least they just had FIFA force alcohol on them. When South Africa hosted the World Cup four years ago, FIFA forced the creation of the FIFA World Cup courts, which sound funny. You know, it's it's like going to the World Series and being dragged in front of Judge Philly (laughs) Fanatic. Except FIFA's courts were no joke. Two Zimbabweans who robbed foreign journalists on a Wednesday were arrested on a Thursday and began 15-year jail sentences the next day. That is unsettlingly fast. That's like when you order Chinese food and it comes five minutes later. thanks very much, but that was too quick. You didn't have time to make this properly. (laughs) And, And there is a certain irony in FIFA setting up any kind of justice system, given the scandals that have dogged it over the years.
0: Football's governing body has tried to tackle its
2: shady inner workings by suspending two executives on corruption charges. The FIFA scandal rumbles on. Jack Warner, who was at the center of bribery accusations, has resigned as vice president. There's been so many corruption scandals that FIFA have had to deal with. Bribery and FIFA go together like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah. They shouldn't, though. Peanut butter and jelly are supposed to go together. FIFA and bribery should go together like peanut butter and a child with a deadly nut allergy. No, Devon, no! It's for your brother! And if you think FIFA can't get any more cartoonishly evil, this is their headquarters' actual boardroom. That's right. FIFA apparently modelled where they meet on the war room from Dr. Strangelove. That is Exhibit A for an organisation that does not give a shit what you think about them. And yet, the head of FIFA maintains that they are merely a humble non-profit organisation.
1: We are a non-profit organisation and we have to remain
0: a non-profit organisation. A non-profit with over a billion dollars in the bank.
1: Yeah, but this is a a, a reserve.
2: A
0: reserve? (laughs) A reserve
2: of a billion dollars. When your rainy day fund is so big, you've got to check it for swimming cartoon ducks. You might not be a not-profit anymore. That, That, by the way... That man, the man you just saw... Is Sepp Blatter, and even his name should have been a red flag. If your name is Sepp, at the bare minimum, you've strangled someone in a bar fight. That's just a fact. And and let me just give you a taste of Sepp Blatter as a human being. Recently, he was asked how should women's soccer be made more popular. He said, well, they should wear shorter shorts. Great idea. Put the ladies in hot pants, call it Foxy Soccer, and, uh, while you're at it, tighten up the jerseys, maybe replace the ball with a plate of hot wings, and, f**k it, let's just open a Hooters. <laughs> FIFA. FIFA, the humble non-profit. Even recently spent $27 million to fund United Passions, a fictionalized version of their history, starring, for some reason, Tim Roth as Sepp Blatter. (laughs) And this movie, like FIFA itself, looks terrible. Will be the
0: Fédération Internationale de Football Association, FIFA.
2: The first World Cup will be held in Uruguay. You have everything you need to run our family. But you know, the slightest error, and you're out. Who makes a sports film where the heroes are the executives? (laughs) And the crazy thing is, you don't need two hours and Tim Roth because the greatest film about Seth Blatter has already been made. It's ten seconds long and it's on YouTube. Wonderfully. That is the one time you can genuinely say I'm glad that old man fell off that stage. <laughs> but perhaps the worst part of FIFA is not even its past or its present, it's its future. Because the host of the 2022 World Cup has already been decided. The winner to organize the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. <laughs> Qatar? There's between 1 and 50 reasons why that is an awful idea. Summer temperatures in Qatar can reach
1: some 50 degrees Celsius, a difficult environment to hold a professional sporting event
2: outdoors. 50 degrees Celsius is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. You are hosting the World Cup somewhere where soccer cannot physically be played. That's like if the NFL chose to host the Super Bowl in a lake. Allegations that some FIFA executives took bribes to put the World Cup in Qatar, and I hope that's true, because otherwise it makes literally no sense. (laughs) And not just because of the weather, but because of the working conditions.
1: Qatar is a slave state in the 21st century. A migrant worker can't leave the country without an exit visa. That visa has to be approved by his employer. Who has your passport? So you're trapped here. We've got coffins coming home every day. More than a worker per day on average is dying. Conservatively, from the figures of just two countries, India and Nepal, more than 4,000 workers will die before a ball is kicked off in 2022.
2: So what you're essentially saying is the Qatar World Cup is shaping up to be the most deadly Middle East construction project since this one. And and by this point, I hope I've proven to you that FIFA is just appalling. And yet, here's their power. I am still so excited about the World Cup next week. And it's very hard to justify how I can get so much joy from an organisation that's caused so much pain, other than going back to right where we started. Soccer or football, like we say, it's a religion. But it's not just that. It's an organized religion, and FIFA is its church. Just think about it. Its leader is infallible, it compels South American countries to spend money they don't have building opulent cathedrals, and it may ultimately be responsible for the deaths of shocking numbers of people in the Middle East. But... 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 But for millions of people around the world, like me, it is also the guardian of the only thing that gives their lives any meaning. (laughs) And if that comparison does not make Americans love soccer, then frankly, nothing will.
0: Okay, controversial um, opinions, controversial statements there from John Oliver. Um, I don't mean to sort of, I don't mean to bring everyone down, but, you know, I like to look at the whole picture And um, I can't help thinking about these things when watching the World Cup. It's, you know, it's just the way it is in the modern world. Um, It's difficult to enjoy something completely without feeling a little bit conflicted about it when you look at exactly what's going on in the background. There you go. Maybe it is the sausage principle. Maybe we shouldn't look too closely at how something that you love is made. Um, Right. Now, to end this episode, well, I'm just going to end it right uh, I will do another one uh, in which I kind of give you my little history of the World Cup it should be fairly short but I often say that don't I say so it's going to be short it ends up being a hundred years long um, but uh, I am going to end now but after the jingle I'll play you Football's Coming Home uh, by Skinner and Bad- Skinner and, and the Lightning Seeds that pop group remember the song from the beginning of the episode I'll play the whole lot of it to you um, you can also find it on YouTube now um, and I'll put the video on my web page as well as the lyrics okay um, so just you'll be able to listen to that now and see if you can pick up some of the lyrics it talks about the hopes and expectations and heartbreak of being an England fan the song was recorded in 1998 and um, that was only after uh, we'd been knocked out from several competitions on penalties in 1998 that was only two two episodes in there were still six, uh, four more episodes of penalty f- penalty uh, heartbreak yet to come but anyway it gives you a taste of what it feels like to be an england fan uh, the highs and the lows the heartbreak the joy the tears and all the other things um stick around after the jingle and you'll be able to hear that song but for now from me it's goodbye bye, bye, bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.
1: I think it's bad news for the English game. We're not creative enough, we're not positive enough. We'll go on getting back, as getting back, as it's I'm getting back, so getting back, getting back. It's coming, for coming home, It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, coming home, it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, Football's coming home. Coming, coming Everyone seems to know the score. So sure that England's gonna throw it away, gonna blow it away, but I know they can play, cause I leave. Ball oh.